0: Some of you may have known this, but Fred Rogers was a ordained Presbyterian minister. And uh, he said on more than one occasion, his idea for this show, the feeling of this show, the, the way he operated with, thought about, and taught children, grew out of his Could you theology. Be
1: mine? Could you be mine?
0: His whole idea Could you of neighboring grew out of... Jesus neighborly is teaching for about neighboring.
1: Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Somebody reminded me this morning that if I'm, I'm going to do this, I have to, to wear to a cardigan. A Just it's like
0: probably not going to happen. always wanted
1: to live in a neighborhood with you, so let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please won't you be my neighbor? And so we're neighbors again
0: today. I'm glad to be with you. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us a deeper lesson in the art of neighboring. Show us what, even specifically what, your call in our life is, your challenge to us is, next step for us are, and then expand our hearts. In the strong name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. So we're in the middle of a series of conversations where we're talking about the art of neighboring, and we're going to be looking this morning at one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible at all, and a number of us aren't, If you're not familiar with the Bible at all, you've probably heard this story. If you don't know the details of the story, you know reference to the story. Jesus actually gives an illustration, a parable this morning, and it is incredibly compelling, especially for self-involved, overly busy, suburban Americans like us. So we're going to pick this little passage apart. I'm going to begin by reading, and like every sentence or two, I'm going to pause and take a deeper dive into what we're looking at to set up the story itself. So walk with me, if you would, through Luke chapter 10, beginning with verse 25. And if you have a Bible, I'd love for you to look along, or you can go to mygateway.life. I think the scripture is up for this morning. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following, mygateway.life. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? A couple of comments. This word test, in the original language, according to one Greek scholar that I read this week, suggests that this was not to place Jesus in a difficulty. He wasn't being malicious. But this was to test Jesus' ability as a teacher. He's kind of finding out how effective a rabbi Jesus is. You know, I wonder where this observation came from. This is an editorial comment. I wonder if this came from someone in the original audience who was later telling Luke about this, or if this was Luke's observation, if he realized in this guy's question that he was testing Jesus. And obviously, the lawyer here asks Jesus an epic question, the most epic question of all. By the way, that same Greek source said, the original of what must I do suggests... That this lawyer is looking for some big, epic thing that he can do to inherit eternal life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? I was reminded of, years ago, some of you know, Diane and I lived in Boston, and we had a young family that had a child, and it was a really difficult birth, and the child had many physical complications. So we went to the hospital to visit them, and, and the, the parents were distraught, but especially the father. He was overwrought and overcome, and weeping. So at one point, I took him out of the room where all of the family and friends were gathered. We went to another place in the hospital, and we sat down, and he just began to weep. And so I said, you know, would you like to pray? And he said, yes, and he immediately fell down on his knees. So I got down on my knees beside him, and he started praying. It was really awesome. He was crying out to God. But then he said this, God, I'll I'll crawl on my hands and knees from Boston to New Hampshire. I'll do whatever if you'll just help this go away. And this reveals, really, a wrong-headed view of the spiritual life. Our spiritual life is meant to be a relationship, not an heroic, one-time activity. God is calling us to, into an ongoing exchange with him. The question, also, suggests a wrong-headed view of eternal life, doesn't it? There are times in the Scripture, repeatedly, if you know Jesus' teaching, you may realize this, when Jesus clearly speaks about eternal life in the present, in the now. I want you to look at the screen. I've got a couple of passages up here where Jesus does exactly that. Look at that second one, just because it's quicker. I tell you the truth, he who believes has eternal life. Repeatedly, Jesus talks about eternal life in the present. So whenever Jesus uses this term, he's referring to a quality of life, not just a quantity, that's available now in the present. But the word used here often suggests a quantity of life as well. In other words, a never-ending, an endless life. It doesn't always mean that, but often it does. And incidentally, I believe that both Jesus and the questioner understand it that way here. They mean both How do I get endless life and how do I have terrific life in the now? Let's go on. What's written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? So this kind of back and forth question, answer, answering a question with a question was typical of rabbinical teaching methodology in Jesus' day. So the lawyer answered, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, It's fascinating. Jesus had answered a similar question in a similar way at another teaching point. I wonder if the lawyer had heard Jesus' teaching. If not, it's striking that the lawyer adds this second command to the first. I'm gonna talk more about that in a few minutes. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? justify himself again that's an interesting observation I wonder where that came from if that was Luke's reading of this or if someone who was on the scene had recounted it that way for Luke and why justify himself was this justification because he wanted a more sophisticated dialogue with Jesus did he think this conversation was too simplistic maybe pridefully he was saying to himself look yeah you know, I'm a PhD Jesus you don't know how sophisticated I am don't give me these little quippy answers." Or maybe this was more personal. Maybe there had been someone in this lawyer's life who had confronted him about his own personal lack of compassion. Maybe this is a little bit more defensive. What do you mean? What are you saying about me? Who is my neighbor? Or maybe this was part of the larger theological dialogue among the Jews of his day, and it it, it was. There was an ongoing debate as to whether or not non-Jews should be even considered as neighbors, according to all of the Levitical neighbor laws, and many wrote about this around the time before and after Jesus and and commented that non-Jews should not be considered neighbors. Jesus ultimately disagrees and others did as well. So in reply, Jesus said this, and now let's go old school. Let's stand out of reverence for God's Word. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So he's going out of his way to make sure we get the picture. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, someone who worked in the temple, supporting the priests. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, He took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper from his own pocket. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any expense you may have here. Now, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him, and Jesus told him, okay, well, go and do likewise. You may be seated. Let's jump back to the inherit eternal life comment for one quick second, because I've got a really important observation I want to make before we dive in. What we're going to do today is we're going to issue a challenge from Jesus, I think, directly to us and then we're going to break that challenge down into three component parts. We don't have to, but I just want us to marinate in it a little bit. So to make sure we get it, we're going to really say the same thing three different ways. But before we do that, let's jump back to that inherit eternal life question. As we said, this lawyer asked an epic question, and as we said, eternal life here refers probably both to quantity of life, non-ending, and to quality of life. So first of all, we should acknowledge that the degree to which Jesus seemed to emphasize the quality aspect of eternal life even more than the quantity may have been somewhat unusual for Jesus' hearers. Jesus seems to want to emphasize that God has really good things in mind for us now. Think of eternal life almost like a synonym for some of Jesus' other statements about abundant life or overflowing life. This is what God wants for us. Jesus is talking about Not just non-ending life, but rich, meaningful, abundant, connected life. And let's not snooze on this. We keep getting this wrong in our minds and hearts, or at least I do. So if you miss everything else, don't miss this. We can't seem to get away from thinking of our religion as what God expects from us. While Jesus continually wants to speak about what God wants for us, we can't seem to get away from thinking of our religion as what God expects from us. And Jesus is continually talking about what God wants for us. But that's not the most unusual part of Jesus' thinking for his original hearers, or for us. The weirdest part of his teaching on eternal life is that Jesus makes himself the center of the whole topic. Don't miss that. The whole discussion of eternal life, Jesus makes himself the center of that discussion over and over again. Look at these two references. Check out that first one, for instance. You study the scriptures, he says to them, diligently, because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. I am the eternal life. I'm the key. I'm the centerpiece to this. Jesus is saying, if you want eternal life, you will find that in me. I am the source, both of non-ending life and of abundant and rich life. Over the years, here at Gateway, and recently, within the last month, I've had people say to me, you know, I consider myself a spiritual person and I believe in God, I get God, but I don't understand the whole Jesus thing. What's the big deal with Jesus? Jesus is the key to having all that God wants for us. He's actually the centerpiece of this discussion. We talk about Jesus on Sunday mornings here at Gateway and sometimes during the week because we can't avoid it if we want the life that God longs for us to have. But it's interesting that in this discussion with the lawyer, Jesus doesn't make that point. He doesn't talk about himself as the center of this discussion. We might have expected Jesus to say something like this. Hey, if you want eternal life, you need to follow me. The Father has sent me so that I could explain this to you. In fact, so that I could be the very essence of the life you're looking for. Follow me and you'll find it. And in fact, Jesus says that kind of thing in many other places. But he goes a completely different direction here. And in this context, he answers the lawyer's question essentially by saying, okay, so go love God and love others. Show mercy. That's because Jesus has a very different point to make here, a point that he knows this lawyer needs to grapple with. And by the way, Jesus' point is absolutely critical for us. As I said, self-involved suburban Americans. So this morning, let's break Jesus' point down into three sub points and and let's marinate on it. We need to hear Jesus's challenge to us in this story. So by way of review, a lot of preface here because the points are going to be quick, but let me set us up again to get to Jesus's challenge. So by way of review, Jesus answers the question by first turning the question back on the lawyer. So, how do you get eternal life? Jesus says, okay, how do you read the law? The lawyer says, it all boils down to loving God with all of your whole self and loving your neighbor as yourself. Interestingly, as I said, Jesus answered this question the exact same way. You know, I wonder if the lawyer had heard Jesus, this teaching of Jesus earlier in his life. We don't know, but I wonder. You should know, this was not an unusual theological question for Jesus' day. There are other recorded incidences of rabbis commenting about the greatest commandment. Plus, it was not unusual for the response to be this, to come down to the love God teaching which came from Deuteronomy. This was a fairly typical answer. But what was very untypical was adding the second part, the love your neighbor adage from Leviticus. This was very unusual, and frankly, it was very Jesus-like. So Jesus says to the lawyer, you got it. So now go live that out. Go do that but the lawyers unsatisfied remember so he asks well who are these others jesus that i'm supposed to love who is my neighbor and jesus answers with a profound explanation that amounts to him saying don't worry about defining who is or who isn't your neighbor i mean that's completely backwards spiritually that's like asking how much sin can i get away with or how much do i really have to forgive That begins at the exact wrong end of the question. You should be instead asking, how do I become an effective neighbor, not how much neighboring do I have to do? So there's the challenge. Let's break that down. Essentially, Jesus is challenging us to do three things. The first thing is Jesus is challenging us to expand our moral circle. Expand our moral circle. For us to be the kind of people that God designed us to be, for us to have the kind of life we long for, we cannot limit ourselves to thinking who is and who isn't in my circle. It cannot be about defining our circle. It's about opening our heart and mind to the need around us. Defining our circle is an act of closing down. We've got to be in the business of opening up. We're not called to create an impenetrable huddle here, we're called to create expanding community. If you're newer at Gateway, you may not know this, but we have a church covenant that pr- we're pretty serious about. Every other year or so, I'll preach through our covenant during the months of January and February. We define it in seven habits. One of those habits is opening our lives to people in need because it's really so easy for our hearts to get closed down and limit our moral circle. So we try to make it a discipline, a habit, an activity in our lives to open our lives to people in need. To help highlight this, I want you to watch this video.
2: Let's just say this is you, you're the big red person. All these people around you are just the people that you come in contact with. Some are people that you're friends with, some are just you know, the the checkout person at the grocery store. Everyone has a moral circle. And all that means is that the people that are most central to you there are going to get your most love and are the people that you're going to be nicest towards. Okay. How many of you here have waited tables? So you guys know what misery that is. I have waited tables also. Imagine a friend, a family member, somebody you really care about is going to start waiting tables. They go through the whole training process. You get a group of people together. You go, you sit in their section. You're all excited first night and they come over and they are just sweating bullets right? What do you say to them? Oh, don't, don't worry about us. Don't worry about us. Don't even worry about, we don't even need drinks. I don't even like water. It's fine. We're fine. I don't even like this. An hour later, they come over and take your order. You ordered steak in front of you is cod. It's great. You love cod. Cod's terrific. We're going to eat this. This is going to be great. And then what do you do at the, over, at the end of the night? You overtip them, don't you? You overtip them. Now imagine that same scenario and you have no idea who this server is. And they come, and you know what? You ordered Coke Zero, and this tastes like Diet Coke. So you stop making eye contact with these people. You start to do that mental math of the tip going down, down, down. I'm not going to even look at this person. You know, this this is ridiculous. We were paying for a good time. What is this? Two different types of behavior from us for two different people. One is your mom. One is your friend. One is your brother. The other one isn't. But the other one's somebody's mom, the other one's somebody's friend, the other one's somebody's brother. Why do we justify two different types of behavior for people that we come in contact with? We show kindness to our kind, meaning the people that are inside that circle are generally going to be people that you think are your kind. Ethnicity, background, financial status, age, orientation, family member, skill set, you name it these are the people that I am going to give my most love to. Just imagine with me, how different would your world be if you just expanded your moral circle? What if all of a sudden the people in your church were known for treating other people in their society like family? What would that do to you? What would that do to your church? What would that do
0: to your life and your heart? This is exactly the challenge of the Good Samaritan. The priest and the Levite both of whom, by the way, are religious professionals. They don't see the mug man as one of their kind. The Samaritan is not thinking about his kind at all. He's just thinking about kindness. What are the enemies of expanding our moral circle? I don't know. You may have other ideas. I could ruminate and think some of the enemies might just be plain self-centeredness. One of the enemies that's big for us, right, is just busyness. Another one is probably, for many of us, prejudice. Speaking of prejudice, a second thing I think we need to tee off on here that's part of Jesus' message is we have to eliminate unhelpful categories. We have to eliminate unhelpful categories. This is really important for us to hear. I think the entire political discussion in America today, and it's heated and it's constant and it's pervasive, I think it is predicated on categories. I honestly believe that there are people, I think I know people, none of you, but I think I know people who won't vote for or against someone until they have someone tell them whether or not they're conservative or liberal. It doesn't matter where they stand on the issues, they just need to know the label. They need to know if they're conservative or they need to know if they're a liberal. You know, over the last two political cycles, they've even turned the word evangelical into a political label. The word evangelical comes from a Greek word used often in the New Testament. It's evangelion or evangelion, translated into evangelism or evangelical. That word means to share good news or to proclaim God's story. Early in the 20th century, groups of Christians began calling themselves that because they wanted to stand on the belief that God's story is amazing and it's worth sharing and I want to tell you what's in my life. And they began to identify themselves as Evangelionists, Evangelicals. It's almost embarrassing to use that term now because it's been so politicized. We are determined to categorize people. And watch CNN on some election night and just listen to how many times they categorize you and me, filling us into little slices. We must become people who eliminate unhelpful categories. Listen, It's sometimes helpful to be able to think in categories. Doctors do this in a very helpful way when they analyze symptoms, for instance. It helps them to get to a diagnosis. But usually, in human interactions, categorizing is limiting and not helpful. This is why Jesus chose to use a Samaritan as the hero of his story. Don't lose that. So... Let's go back in Israel's history for a minute. At the risk of boring you, Israel was this territory-powerful kingdom, and at a certain point there was a civil war, and they broke into the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom became known as Judah, and the northern kingdom largely became known as Israel. And Jerusalem, the capital and the holy city, was in territory of Judah. And mostly through its history, Judah was represented and was governed by the line of David. So they tried more effectively, although not very effectively, ultimately, to stay truer to the worship of God. But in the northern kingdom, almost immediately after the civil war, they began to break away. They worship Baal, and they worship all kinds of other gods. I'm oversimplifying, but stay with me. And eventually God said, I've had enough. And if you read the prophets in the Old Testament, this is what's going on. Prophets would go either to Israel or sometimes to Judah and say, stop it, listen to me, Come to follow me. I told you the way to live. If you'll just do that, it will go well for you but they don't. So eventually God says, I've had enough. And God's patience does run out. And Israel was ransacked. And many of the residents there were scattered throughout parts of Asia Minor and even into Europe. The same eventually happened to Judah as well. But when they were scattered, the few Jews that were left, and even some that trickled back in, They began to intermarry, and they started worshiping the gods of all the people around them, and they were half-breeds, and they were the Samaritans. That's who the Samaritans became. So for a devout Jew, you don't even say the word Samaritan. That's why the law perhaps, why the lawyer answers Jesus' question. Jesus says, which one of these do you think was the good neighbor? And the lawyer says, well, I guess the guy who had mercy. Samaritans were outside the moral circle of most devout Jews. And not only does Jesus bring the Samaritan inside the moral circle, he makes him the hero. He's the only one who understands mercy and kindness and justice. He's the only one who loves his neighbor. Here's Jesus' point. Act with kindness and mercy toward those who are near you, regardless of the category within which they fall. This is a tricky thing, isn't it? Really, if we think about this, we could talk about this for a long time. This is tricky because those people who are not in the right category, listen, it is not a Jesus activity. It's not a Jesus attitude to use that as an excuse. There's nothing about Jesus's life or his ministry that would encourage any of us to be victims of anything. It's also difficult for those of us who are on the right side of categories to stay sensitive to that. And by the way, if you have the resources to live in Northern Virginia, you're on the right side of most categories. Your kids go to these schools, you live in these neighborhoods, you're on the right side of most categories. And if you're white and you live in an area like this, You're really on the right side of most categories. We have to be sensitive. We have to do a lot of work to eliminate unhelpful categories. Thirdly, we have to embody mercy. This is the art of neighboring. This is the essence of Jesus' challenge. Act with mercy toward those in need who are near you. Care for them in an effort to meet their need. If necessary, use your own means to meet their need. This may be someone at work who's become a good friend or someone at work whom you barely know, but for some reason, you've become aware of their need. Or this may be someone at school who's in your circle of friends. Or it may be someone with whom Jesus wants you to expand your circle. And for some reason, you become aware of their need. This may be someone on your street. It may be your next-door neighbor. When we see need, we are the kind of people who embody mercy in the most radical ways, under the most expansive circumstances. This is what the Samaritan did. So, this past winter, I don't know if any of you saw this story, but Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York was in one of the big snowstorms that they had. He was driving back into the city and he was in a small motorcade. It was just uh, Andrew Cuomo and one big SUV behind him, and there was a motorist by himself, stranded in a snowbank. So, Andrew Cuomo pulled over, got out, spoke to the guy in the car, and got the other people in the SUV to come over. They set up a chain. They pulled the motorist out of the snowbank, and of course, the New York press lit up about this. What they liked the most about it is as they were leaving, the man turned and shook Governor Cuomo's hand, thanked him and said, what's your name? Anyway, (laughs) what they said, you won't be surprised at this, what they said in the New York papers was Governor Andrew Cuomo was what? A good Samaritan. But that's pretty different than Jesus' story, isn't it? That's awesome. And I want you to know, frankly, I'm not that nice. I would not have stopped. But. Jesus goes much further than that. Jesus, in fact, is almost offensive. So let's go where Jesus went. Let's imagine that a very conservative Christian talk show host, someone that I might listen to, spins off the road and gets caught in a snowbank. And the pastor of Gateway Community Church comes along, but he moves to the other lane and passes by. And then an elder at Gateway Community Church drives by, and he moves further over into the other lane and passes by. And then a cross-dressing gay man who's just gotten back from lobbying his congressman stops and gets out to help. And Jesus says, I want you to be like the cross-dressing gay guy. Be that kind of neighbor. Okay, let's end there. Remember our assignment, if you were here two weeks ago. We started this process by challenging ourselves to pray for our neighbors. We're gonna continue that this week. I'm gonna add to this next week. But your assignment is to pray for your neighbors. Pray for the people that neighbor next to you at work. Pray for the people that neighbor near you in your neighborhood. Pray for the people that neighbor with you on your kids' sports teams or on your sports team. Pray that you'll have God's heart for them. Pray that God will open your eyes to see need in the midst of your busyness. Pray that God will create space for you to be his hands and his feet. That's the charge. And pray for the courage to act with mercy. Let's pray. Honestly, Lord, I feel like you have spoken and we've heard you or we've tried. I pray that you would help us expand our moral circle because we don't even know how to do this apart from you. Enlarge our heart. Break our hearts with the things that break your heart. I pray that you would help us eliminate unhelpful categories. We don't even see how we do this. So we need you to show us. And I pray that you would call us to embody mercy to act with justice and kindness and mercy to any who have need that are near us. In Jesus' name, amen. So we want to end today with a prayer to wrap this up, but we're gonna sing our prayer. So Jonathan, bring up this passion. This passion in my heart this stirring in my soul. Uh, to see the nation's bow for all the world to know I'm living for your glory on the earth. So I want us to sing this like a prayer. So you literally pray this to him while you're singing it. Do your best. All that you know of yourself to all that you know of him. Here's what I'm going to do. As we sing through this, we'll go through it a couple of times. I'm going to feed you the words. So if it helps you to close your eyes, you close your eyes and I'll give you the lyrics before they come. In choir, let's sing this to him. I don't care if you don't sing well, that's okay. Try your best to keep it to yourself, but that's okay. Jump in anyway and sing loudly. Passion. Here we go. This passion in my this heart stirring in my, soul, this stirring in my
1: soul to see the nations bow, see the nations bow for all, the world, for to all the world to know I'm living for your I'm glory. Let's do that again. This passion in my heart. This passion this in, in my heart. My soul. This story.